One of the 20th century's mysteries is how, in the middle of a world recession in the 1930s, Nazi Germany equipped itself with the latest military technology and launched an immense war of conquest. Until the war began, the Nazis didn't use slave labour, they paid for everything they used. Meanwhile, France and Britain, who were supposed to have won the First World War, struggled through years of wild economic fluctuation and uncertainty. We're beginning to see that the answer to the mystery begins in the United States. During the First World War, the Americans had loaned vast sums of money to the British and the French. According to the peace treaties, it was the Germans who were supposed to come up with the money so that the British and French could pay it all back to the Americans. But in the course of the 1920s, it dawned on the Americans that investing in war-torn Germany would not only get that money repaid from the British and the French, but would also provide rich pickings for American companies. So long as Britain and France kept passing the money on to the Americans, it didn't matter if Britain and France never recovered from the war. Nor, actually, did it matter if Germany fell deeper and deeper into debt, so long as they kept on paying up. Well, it all looked extremely unfortunate for the Europeans and the perfect way to make an immense fortune for the Americans. Until it all came horribly unstuck. Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Roseback. And we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. If in the 1920s the Americans believed they had discovered a high road to everlasting wealth by beggaring Europe and investing in it and charging them high interest, well, they had a rude awakening. We think of these years as the Roaring Twenties, the years of the Great Gatsby and Cole Porter, early Hollywood, triumph of the American automobile. But this glitzy American prosperity was never more than skin deep. It never reached more than a tiny minority of Americans, certainly didn't seep down to the 60% and more who remained below the official poverty line. Well, economists squabble over the details, you'll be but, surprised to hear. <laughs> yeah, but the American experience of a century ago proves beyond any doubt that making the rich richer and impoverishing everyone else is a short-term route to temporary wealth for a tiny few and very quickly leads to ruinous financial crash. Entirely predictably, the Americans discovered that beggaring Europe had an impact on their own economy. Nearly a century on, just what fundamentally caused the Wall Street crash of October 1929 remains, uh, rather surprisingly it seems to me, a mystery. From time to time, the economists have another go at explaining it, but there's still no agreement, which does rather demonstrate the limitations of economic theory. <laughs> but there's little doubt that the Americans' policy of exacting every cent they could from Europe rebounded horribly on them. The Germans had their own mini stock market crisis in 1927-28, and then their own financial crash in March 1929. Which is, of course, before the Wall Street crash, which was October 1929. And then the Banque de France began hoarding gold, which was a bad thing. Yeah, how the flow of gold <laughs> affected things is a subject of such arcane complexity, it makes medieval alchemy, turning lead into gold, look more like a cakewalk. 
Anyway, the French bank began hoarding gold and that too began to drag the economies down. The British then suffered a financial crisis in September 1929, just before the Wall Street crash. One of the most recent and sophisticated attempts to explain the Wall Street crash has been written by Jean-Laurent Cadorel of the Paris School of Economics. He points to this British crisis in September 1929 as the tipping point that finally sent Wall Street down the next month. What is plain anyway is that the heart of this worldwide instability was the grim American insistence on being paid back every cent for the loans they had made in the war. It starved the world's economies of the means to reconstruct and to weather the normal short-term economic ups and downs. By 1929, as financial crisis followed financial crisis across Europe, the convoluted scrabble of indebtedness between America and Europe was looking more and more unstable. It's been compared to the subprime mortgages that dragged the world's bankers into the crash of 2007, from which the rest of us, but not of course the bankers, are still recovering. It's not exact, but it's not a bad metaphor. So in early 1929, the Americans set up another commission to try to rescue the situation. But it promised to be just another American financial fix, which suit them, but nobody else. It was headed by Owen Young, who was head of General Electric and one of the trustees of the Rockefeller Foundation. He'd just been voted outstanding American businessman. Yeah, businessman, yeah. Young was accompanied to Paris in 1929 by someone we've met before, the Manhattan banker J.P. Morgan. Or, in fact, he was accompanied part of the time. Morgan was, in fact, more interested in going on a Mediterranean cruise with the English Archbishop of Canterbury. Morgan commented, If hell is anything like Paris and an international conference, it has many terrors and I shall try to avoid them. Morgan then couldn't wait, in fact, to get away so he could go grouse shooting in Scotland, much more important than sorting out the world's economies. But it was all too late anyway. In October 1929, Wall Street crashed, wiping out $14 billion in stock values on a single day. And goodness knows how much more in the days that followed. As a consequence, American national income plummeted from $90 billion, for example, in 1919, to just $20 billion in 1931. As the former British Prime Minister Lloyd George wryly commented, the Americans' insistence on being repaid every cent of the money they had loaned to European governments in the First World War had cost them, quotes, in a single year, three times as much as the whole capital value of the war debts due to her. So much for putting world affairs in the hands of businessmen, financiers and lawyers. Just take a look around the British cabinet table as we record this in 2023. By the beginning of 1930, everybody was pretty much having to start again. Through the 1920s, the Americans flexed the enormous financial muscle they'd acquired by making enormous loans to finance the First World War, but doing virtually none of the fighting. In particular, they bought up German companies and loaned to German banks and institutions. But a succession of right-wing Republican governments in Washington had so skewed the American economy towards the rich and loaded the Germans and other European nations with such hopeless debt that the whole system had spectacularly collapsed in the Wall Street crash. 
By the beginning of the 1930s, American businesses like Ford or General Motors or ITT that had invested and built factories in Germany during the good times found that they were locked into a German economy in freefall. The new Republican Washington government of Herbert Hoover elected in 1928, using the usual right-wing playbook and unable to grasp the basic principles of investing to boost recovery, imposed austerity and, of course, made it all much worse than it had been. In 1930, Hoover even imposed formidable 50% tariffs on imports, which protected American industries, but made recovery much, much more difficult for their European customers. In exactly the same way, at the same time, as historian Jonathan Haslam points out, the British Tory government likewise cut government spending, so causing the British economy to collapse yet further. And the German government made exactly the same mistake with exactly the same result. Things got dramatically worse in 1931, which is a story very few of us know. On the 11th of May 1931, Credit Anzalt, which was Vienna's largest bank, collapsed. Well, to say it was Vienna's largest bank doesn't really convey the reality. It was bigger than all the other Austrian banks put together. Its balance sheet was as big as the Austrian government's. But just like Germany, Austria was propped up by American and British loans. Credit Anselt was in fact more than 50% financed by foreign banks. And it was completely inevitable that the worldwide financial crisis would eventually catch up with it. But it then set off a chain of bank crises in Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Poland and Germany. From September 1931, the Berlin Stock Exchange was closed down for eight months. By then, appeals to the Americans had finally got through. On the 20th of June 1931, President Hoover at last announced that there would be a moratorium on those enormous First World War intergovernment debts, a temporary halt. I'm sure, he declared, that the American people have no desire to attempt to extract any ounce beyond the capacity to pay. Well, it was ungenerous, tight-lipped, a decade overdue and nowhere near enough. A report in July 1931 revealed that the British were sitting on huge overseas loans they simply could not now collect. Investors began pulling out. The British government announced yet more cuts, even to the armed services. Yes, on the 15th of September 1931, Royal Naval sailors refused to put to sea from Invergordon in protest at cuts in their pay. The Invergordon mutiny, so-called. Mm. Finally, on the 21st of September 1931, the British dramatically announced that they were leaving the gold standard. Gold standard? Perhaps we don't need to explain the gold standard anymore, even if we understood it. Even economists find it difficult to explain exactly how the world's gold supply works. Let's just say that coming off the gold standard suddenly brought down the value of the British pound by a quarter, 25%. That made British goods much cheaper, with the result that the British could export much more and were likely to import much less. Well, the economy in Britain began to recover slowly. But it did so partly at the expense of Germany, its main European trading partners. The British then made it worse for the Germans in July and August 1932 at a conference in Ottawa in Canada. In a series of agreements with Canada, New Zealand, Australia and Britain's other imperial dominions, the British instituted what was known as imperial preference. 
In other words, trade within the British Empire didn't have to pay the import and export tariffs that everybody else did. It was another much-needed tonic to the British economy. But once again, of course, it hit the Germans, whose export trade to Britain collapsed. One of the first acts of the new American president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, after he took office in March 1933, was to take the dollar also off the gold standard. While the dollar too now sank in value, throwing everyone else into a new round of complete economic confusion. So in June that year, a conference of 66 nations met in London to try to put an end to this succession of crises. Above anything else, they called loudly for an end once and for all to the burden of paying war debts and reparations. They also wanted to halt currencies sliding in value against each other and causing such chaos. But just as the conference was getting underway, Roosevelt made it quite clear that under pressure from the American Congress, he would not discuss war debts. He then gave an interview to the press in which he declared that he was not interested either in imposing any new control on the value of currencies. The result of what became known as Roosevelt's bombshell was that the conference broke up without any significant agreement. So once again, the Americans had pulled the plug on the rest of the world. Well, these, of course, are the background and causes of the economic meltdown in Germany. And that, as we all learned in school, was what finally brought Adolf Hitler and the Nazis to power. On the 30th of January 1933, Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. And let us, while we're here, just notice this. Nazism... World War II and the rest of the misery into which the Nazis plunged much of the world in the 1930s and 40s were not caused just because of Hitler's rhetoric or his strangely charismatic madness, or because of something maladjusted in the German national character. Nor, fundamentally, was it caused, as we were all taught in school, because of factors like Germans' resentment at the territory they'd been forced to give up after the First World War. Until 1929, none of these things had pushed the Germans in any significant way towards the Nazis. Neither was the economic crisis that brought Hitler to power caused by anything basically unsound about the world's economies. It wasn't because ordinary people refused to work or were asking for too much money. Nor was it because socialist governments wanted to spend too much money protecting the sick and the vulnerable. It was wholly caused, exactly like the crisis of 2007 from which the world is still reeling, ruining people's lives, it was wholly caused by financiers. Backed by right-wing governments, they play games with everyone else's money in order to enrich themselves and then blame everyone else when it all goes horribly wrong. If only the voters knew some history. Anyway, back to the story. From 1931, it was every nation for itself. That's important. During the 1920s, there had been desperate attempts to return to the pre-war days of international cooperation and tariff-free trade. But American greed had destroyed the trust and the financial stability on which all that had been based. From 1931, the world entered an era of what historians have called economic nationalism. And the country where that had the most dramatic impact was Germany. Enter Adolf Hitler. Or more important to this story, enter Hjalmar Schacht, the Nazi economics minister. The only thing most popular historians seem to know about Schacht is that his full name was Hjalmar Horace Greeley Schacht. 
He was in fact half German, half Danish, but his parents had spent many years in the States and they named him after an eccentric and now long-forgotten editor of the New York Tribune, Horace Greeley. People also don't know that Hjalmar Schacht played the violin, wrote poetry, raised pigs and sometimes smoked cheap cigars. In 1926, he also told a Swiss newspaper, Le Journal de Genève, quotes, I am always right. <laughs> he sounds, he sounds his, great. His co-defendants at Nuremberg after the Second World War said the only thing that was clean, believable about Schacht was his starched collar. And it was some starched collar, yeah. You should see the pictures of him standing with Hitler. On our website. After giving up on studying medicine, Schacht had been a successful banker since 1903. In 1920, he got to know, guess who? The New York lawyer, Foster Dulles, whom we've also got to know, negotiating a billion dollars worth of loans to the Germans under extremely questionable circumstances in the 1920s and sitting at the heart of an enormous network of American businesses from the Rockefellers to ITT. In fact, Schacht and Dulles met in a Berlin hotel with machine gun fire from a failed coup going off around the hotel. I have this extraordinary image of these two rather stuffy, old-fashioned, schoolmasterish and supremely arrogant men smoking cheap cigars, which they both <laughs> talking money with its machine guns going off outside the window. They certainly got on because they kept in contact for over a decade, and that was important. Schacht was very useful to Dulles's many business associates because Schacht was president of Germany's Reichsbank for a while from 1923. Once Hitler became chancellor, he quickly reappointed Schacht to the Reichsbank and in 1934 made him Reichsminister of Economics. Now, we could set out on an account of Schacht's policies as the Third Reich's financial supremo in the crucial period from 1933 to 1937. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they were the years in which the foundations of the Nazi state were built and Germany set out fully on the road to war. However, it is, as Penelope suggests, a subject of such arcane complexity that you need to be an economist or an alchemist to stick with it. If you want to give it a go, read Neil Forbes's scholarly and accessible Doing Business with the Nazis, which was published in 2000, or Adam Tooze's equally good Wages of Destruction, which came out in 2006. But let's just try to cut through to the basics. The central point is that Germany, like Britain and the other nations of Europe, now adopted full-blown economic nationalism, every nation for itself. You mean like make America great again? Like make America great again, that kind of thing. But in the 1930s, Germany faced its own particular difficulties in imposing a policy of economic nationalism. You see, at the start of the 1930s, there were many critical products that Germany couldn't produce for itself. Coal, oil, rubber, ball bearings and much besides. So it had no choice but to import them. But here Germany faced a serious problem with currencies. As everybody else's economy was collapsing around them, Germans found it very difficult to earn foreign currency and that meant it was difficult to buy anything from abroad. Can you explain that a bit more? A uh, little bit, anyway. These days, you know, we don't have to worry whether we have any dollars if we want to buy something online from America, or euros if we want to buy something from Germany. We just tell our bank to pay, and someone, somewhere, converts our payment into dollars or euros, at whatever the going rate is, and pays the equivalent to the seller. But in the 1930s, in fact, for roughly a century between the middle of the 19th century and the end of the Second World War, you just couldn't do that. If you wanted to buy something from Britain, someone in your banking system actually had to have the pounds to do it with. 
So if you wanted to buy from abroad, as a nation, you had to acquire the dollars or the pounds or the francs, liras, pesetas, escudos or whatever the currency then was to do it. In fact, you had to have sold something abroad to earn their foreign currency. And once you'd earned it, you had to be careful not to waste it in case you wanted to buy something from them. As a result, from 1931, Germany had adopted foreign exchange controls. They imposed a strict limit on the foreign money that you could send or take out of the country. And that, of course, and this is the key thing, was a nightmare for the American companies like Ford or General Motors or IBM or ITT, all those companies who had spent the 1920s investing millions of dollars in Germany and now wanted to get their money get out. It out. Yeah. Faced with the wild economic blizzards of the early 1930s, the new Third Reich economics minister, Hjalmar Schacht, ratcheted up Germany's policies of economic nationalism. In fact, he pushed them far beyond what any other country was doing. Whenever he was challenged, Schacht loudly blamed the Americans for continuing to insist on the payment of wartime reparations. He also very cleverly suggested that his policies were the only way to avoid the complete collapse of the German economy. In that case, everyone would just simply lose their money. So now the predicament of the American companies under the Nazis in the 1930s becomes a lot clearer. And it should be said, we'll get to the British later. Discovering that Fords and the others went on operating in Hitler's Third Reich has led some historians to cry foul. These companies were trading with the enemy or at any rate knowingly doing business with a despicably immoral regime. But until the actual war, at any rate, American companies found themselves trapped in Schach's mesh of regulations. Well, I suppose they could sell up, but then getting their cash out would have been very difficult. The result was that almost all of them opted to sit it out. They argued, and you have to say not really unreasonably, that Schacht would relax his controls when world economic conditions improved. So, like businessmen in every time and every place, they would just close their eyes to the moral implications of what they were doing and try to make as much money as they could in the meantime. We're beginning to feel our way to an answer to our question. How on earth the Nazis were able to arm themselves in defiance of the world's worst recession to date and the economic desolation of much of Europe? Reich economics minister Hjalmar Schacht had snared the Americans in a kind of financial trap. He played them at their own game, in fact. After their wild investment spree in the 1920s, Americans discovered that Schach's exchange controls and his manipulation of overseas debts had locked them into the German economy of the Third Reich. The upshot was that it was American companies that ended up making the trucks and aeroplanes and filling them with the petrol and aviation fuel that Hitler's forces would use to invade Poland and Norway and Denmark and Belgium and France and to bomb London. Fords even supplied the engines for the barges the Nazis got together when they were threatening to invade Britain. No wonder, when Schacht wrote his autobiography long after the war, it had a dull German title, but appeared in the United States under the title Confessions of the Old Wizard, as we shall see next time at the History Café. 
There are nearly a hundred podcasts at the History Cafe, all of them still as new as the day they were recorded. Go to our website, historycafe.org, and you can get a rundown on the research we've done and plenty of leads to follow if you still want more. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every other platform you can think of. Just look out for History Cafe Podcast with John and Penelope. If it's your thing, follow us on Instagram and what used to be Twitter at History Cafe Pod. And ask your friends to join us too. Oh,